I didn't think I was going to be excited about transitioning out of 1 John, and I want to tell you I'm super excited about it. Um, look at this book of Jonah. It's right in front of you. Open up 774. The entire book is right in front of you. The whole book. And I want you to imagine something for a minute. As it sits in front of you, I want you to imagine that you got somewhere on time and not late this time. You arrived at the play on time and the screen and the curtain has not opened yet. And you're sitting there and there's soft music. I know we're all amazed that we're on time, right? The screen and the soft music plays and then the music dies and the screen opens. And as the screen opens, you see pieces of furniture set up. And you see individuals coming out into their places. The lights dim. And the actors take their positions. And I want you to see that the stage is set. I want you to think about these few verses of Jonah like that. I want you to imagine that God has set that stage for you and for me and that the main theme of why he has set that stage for us is to confront us with his character for the world and ours in turn. Let me say it one more time. The stage has been set and I want you to think about this theme that God has set this stage to confront us with his character toward the world and in turn our character toward the world. I want you to see the setting of the stage in three ways and three verses, right? Fits together. I'm brilliant, aren't I? Setting the stage for preaching Jonah all fall. That's going to be the verse one, okay? Yes, that's right. That book that's in front of you is ours all fall. Already my Bible naturally opens up to it. If you bring your Bible to church, yours will too. But I'll bet you the blue ones do by the end of this fall. Setting the stage for preaching Jonah all fall. Setting the stage for the book of Jonah is the second thing I want you to see. Verses 1 and 2. And then finally setting the stage for us to deal with God's character toward the world. That's what's happening in these few verses, believe it or not. So let's jump in. Let's see what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I want to set the stage for why we're preaching Jonah all fall. And it is that phrase, the word of the Lord. If you pay attention to our service week in and week out, every week, we read the scripture and then we say, this is the word of God or this is the word of the Lord and we respond, thanks be to God. You know that my friends know that I'm a minister and invariably during the week, something will happen and they will call me and say, this is what you should preach on this week. You should preach on this event that happened. Or they say, I've got a great illustration for you. Make this illustration central to everything that you're saying. But what I want you to know, 
that may go without being said, that maybe shouldn't go without being said, is that when God's church meets, God's church meets and preaches God's word. As we were reminded in Sunday school, God's wisdom is not our wisdom. Therefore, we ought to expect his word to confront us, right? Unlike the Instapot society that we live in, and by that I mean that we all value speed and efficiency, right? You know the Instapot, the pressure cooker. I hope you bought one. I bought one. I love mine. I have a cookbook for you if you don't think that you can use it well. I've got a great cookbook. But unlike our Instapot society, God's word is not about speed. That doesn't mean it can't be. But when Jesus had an opportunity to talk about the word of God, he compared it to seed in Luke 8. And he defined it as growing over time and bearing fruit. The psalmist talks about meditating on God's law, his precepts, and his testimonies. One of the illustrations that I've given our students from time to time that Luke and I talk about from time to time is holding God's word up like a diamond and turning it in the sun so that the various and different facets of its truth shine into our hearts. You know that one of my favorites is marinating. Cucumbers become pickles. I don't know if an Instapot could make that faster or not. One might think yes, but for a cucumber to really become a pickle, it takes time. Some of the best things that are ever spoken on a men's retreat happen to be in Jeff's hot tub where there is marination taking place, an effective marination, I would add. What do we believe about this word of God in which we are going to sit? The scriptures say that the word of God stands forever. What do you know that stands forever? Not even the man in the mountain in New Hampshire stood forever. I was up there with a group of students when it fell. The word of God accomplishes its purpose. Not sometimes, all the time. The word of God never returns void, is what the scripture says. And finally, it says that the word of God is alive and active. It's just a few things that it says about the word of God, but I'm setting the stage of why we would study God's word, and specifically this word of Jonah, all fall. My wife is an art history major. We just rented our house out last month to an art historian. We talked about Jerome's Pygmalion and Galatea. Do you know the image? The sculptor is sculpting the sculpture and he's overcome by the beauty of the sculpture and he prays to the God, would you please allow this sculpture to be as beautiful as a wife that I would long to have? And in the corner of the picture is Cupid's bow that shoots the sculpture with an arrow. And as the sculpture makes the masterpiece. From toe to head, it comes to life. I want you to know that the word of God is the chisel with which the Holy Spirit uses to craft his work into the image of Christ 
and brings it to life, not dependent on any other God. But God himself does that. And you and I, we are his workmanship. The reason for a deep and extended dive, James, that pun is intended, into the book of Jonah is to experience together the transformative power of God's word over time. The second thing that we're setting this stage for is for the book of Jonah itself. Remember I said that the main theme is that God confronts us with his character for the world and in turn our character, maybe our heart for the world. And what I want you to see is that in these verses he sets the stage for the book of Jonah. Verses 1 and 2, listen to them. Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There. This is the setting for the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of 12 minor prophets of the Hebrew Testament of Scriptures. Five major ones, 12 minor ones. You can look them up in the table of context if you want. But Jonah is unique in that it is the only minor prophet that doesn't focus on the prophecy. Rather, Jonah, though it is a minor prophet, is a historical narrative, the emphasis of which is teaching. What do we mean by that? Well, the first thing that we see is that Jonah is presented to us as a real individual. I don't know how many times you've heard the story of Jonah and the whale, and in some senses, I wish I could take that story away from you and hold on to it. I remember that there was one of you in one of our sermon series, we were going through a book in the Old Testament, and, and you literally had not read it before, and you said every Sunday that you came to church, you were so excited to hear what happened next because you didn't know the story. Jonah would take you like four minutes to read. You know the story, but in one sense, I wish you didn't. Because I want you to understand that Jonah is presented to us as a real individual. Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's not the only place in Scripture that he's referenced. 2 Kings 14, 25. If you were to do the work, you could place Jonah into the 8th century B.C. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, suggests that the reason why the introduction to Jonah is so short is because Jonah was well known. And the reason that he would have been well known is because he fought for Israel's expansion. He was a champion prophet of Israel. Big deal. But the other thing that's unique about Jonah is that he was the first prophet of God to be sent to another people. Jonah presents as a historical narrative. Jonah was a real guy. Nineveh was a real place. I put that little chart in the order of worship so you could see it. The only thing that I can't tell you that we're sure of is we have no idea where Tarshish is, okay? There, I gave it to you. We have no idea where Tarshish is. The best scholarship says that it was somewhere extremely west on the edge of all trading. But you can see in that picture where Nineveh is in relation to Joppa, the port that's also named here. Jonah probably came from some area of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom at the time, where he would have engaged with the king, right? Jeroboam II was that king in 2 Kings. 
And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This Assyrian Empire had ebbed and flowed in control and power. But in the 8th century, its control was regaining again. And in the 8th century, it was continuing the practices of brutality and of oppression and of destruction and of annihilation that it was known for. Only one small example of which is that they, when they defeated their enemy, would dismember their enemy, arm and two legs, and they would leave one arm and one hand so that they could go by and shake the hand of their enemy. A brutal kingdom. In the end of the 8th century, 722, this kingdom of Assyria would come and completely crush and annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel. A real guy, a real place. This really happened. And it's not just because the Bible claims it. Anyone that reads Hebrew Scripture would recognize that it's just like the way that 1 Kings 18 starts. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and everybody believes that Elijah existed. And the intro is just the same. But not only that, Jesus references Jonah and speaks about him and about Nineveh as real. We will address the miraculous aspects of this book of Jonah, I promise. But I want you to believe that it is a historic narrative, the last of which is presented as a real command in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In this historical narrative, God has the prerogative over Jonah, over justice, and over mercy in the face of evil. But I told you it's not just a historical narrative, but the last part of setting the stage for the book of Jonah is that its emphasis is one of teaching. Its emphasis is one of us interacting with it. Imagine this was written in Jonah's lifetime. Scholars disagree about this, whether it was written in Jonah's lifetime or whether it was compiled later. Um, I'm probably more convinced that it was written in Jonah's lifetime. There are aspects of this that, you know, the Holy Spirit can give divine inspiration as he wills, but it makes the most sense that whoever wrote it would ask Jonah, and Jonah would say, this is what I prayed. That, that works for me. But imagine the first audience reading this, those who had lived through the annihilation of the Assyrian Empire, the absolute desolation of their nation, and imagine the message that God would send to their worst enemy, go and warn them of my judgment. The interesting thing is that Jonah is an isolated story. If you were to take it out of the Bible, you wouldn't miss any of the narrative arc of Scripture. You wouldn't miss it. The other thing that's interesting is that it's open-ended. Jonah ends with a question. You know that the book that I want to write, that maybe one day I'll be bold enough to write, is questioning God. And it does not mean your questions for God, but God's questions for us as human beings created in his image. What other God do you know of that asks as many questions as our God does of us? The teaching 
and the narrative, the historical narrative aspect of this book is an invitation for us to be confronted by God's character toward the world and in turn our characters toward the world, our hearts toward the world. And finally, I want to end with that. That the stage is set here for us to be confronted by God's character to the world and in turn, our characters toward the world. I want to look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, but Jonah, rose to, uh, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I was in Sunday school class this afternoon and many times I just kind of stopped and I was like, what is God doing today? Because I had not read what Jeff had written, but one of the things that Jeff laughed about and, and put before us that bears a lot of fruit is when you're wondering who you ought to identify with the Bible, you ought to identify with the individual that's doing the dumb thing. Right? And you ought to say, hmm, maybe that's who I identify with in this passage. When I thought about this, I thought, you know, you're sitting there watching this narrative unfold, and the director of the play is to your left. And I know at this point that you want to cozy up next to the director and go, yeah, that was stupid, wasn't it? And just like we do in every other aspect of our society, we cast derision on those whom we find stupid. We exalt those who agree with us. And we go forward with the confidence that we're in the right and they're in the wrong. We would love to mete out God's justice and his mercy in a way that serves us, right? But isn't it interesting, Jonah's response? I think it's a response that draws us in. We'd rather it not, but I think that it does. It says that Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. And it says it not once, but twice in the same verse. Do you see that? It has been the human response to God in his presence since the garden. Where did God find Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, you all know, hiding behind fig leaves, right? You know that. But you know what it says about Adam and Eve? They hid from the presence of the Lord. Isn't it also interesting that there God enters the garden and what does he do first but ask a question? Have you ever noticed that? Secondly, in Genesis 4, after God confronts Cain for murdering his brother Abel, and says, from now on, you're going to be a sojourner and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain says, it's too much for me. Whoever finds me kills me. God says, not so. And God puts his mark on Cain. But then do you want to know what it says? And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Notice how much energy Jonah puts in going away from the presence of the Lord. It says that he paid the fare... He went down into it, meaning the ship, 
And then finally, with the intention to go with them to Tarshish. Again, I confess, we don't know where it is. But I guarantee you, if that boat is sailing from Joppa, look at that map, it's not going toward Nineveh. It's going the other way. Away from the presence of the Lord. And I think that you are like me. The tension of being drawn into Jonah. This is a brilliant piece of literature because right now, you and I are inside a dark boat. We have paid the price to get away from the presence of the Lord. We have sought to be out of the light of His exposure. And we long for distance from Him because His presence is defined by His prerogative and not our own. Notice Jonah is one of God's people. Jonah knows Psalm 139. It was written well before his time. You know this psalm, right? Let me, let me turn to it. Let me read it for you real quick. I just want to read these few verses, 7 through 12. Listen to this. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew that, and yet he ran. Our memory verse for the month is Jeremiah 23. Two questions from God. Am I not the God of day and also the God of night? Jonah knows that we need this story. Jonah. I meant to say God knows. Thank you for looking at me cross-eyed. God knows that we need the story of Jonah. It's in the scriptures. Even when the word of God, we stand on the side of when the word of God became flesh. And as Peterson says, moved into our neighborhood. We know what it means from that song, What Wondrous Love Is This?, that when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. We know the story that we have been bought with the blood of Christ. That Jesus, according to Galatians, that Paul writes to the Christians there, that we are now no longer alive, but Christ is alive in us. And the life that we live by faith is the Son of God in us who loves us and gave himself for us. We know this. And yet, and yet, we need Jonah. Because we also know that the Word made flesh commanded us, go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have told you. In this story of Jonah, even for us, God is confronting us with his character 
for the world. And in turn, ours, because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might bode the language of Lewis that says, if you intend to be an atheist, you better be very careful of what you read. Because the word of God is alive. What do we do in conclusion? I hope that you're convinced that you think one of the main themes of this book is going to be God confronting us with his character for the world and in turn ours. This is what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go say, okay, okay, now I get that. Thanks for imparting that. Can we get on with it? Remember, our goal here is to marinate. That's why the title of this is Come On In, The Water's Fine. Come on in, the water's fine. Come and, come and sit with us. Come and be present. Come and be in the presence of God's word. Two pages of scripture for a semester. I want to challenge you to invite God to do his work in your life. I want to ask you a question both you who profess faith and those of you who do not, how do you experience hiding from God? God makes it clear in Jonah that his prerogative is the one that wins. He is the one who has the prerogative over Jonah, over justice, over mercy, even in the face of evil. How do you experience hiding from God? Let me sharpen the sword just a little bit more. When do you hide from him? The last question, who is your Nineveh? Where is the place that you have said, I will not go there? I will not. To what expense have you gone? To hide in the dark with the intention of distance from God. Sharpen that one. When have you said, there's no hope? There's just no hope. My closing illustration is from a concert that I used to go to. We would go to a bar in Asheville called Be Here Now. We would listen to an artist by the name of David Wilcox. He was phenomenal. He had one song, one song called Show the Way. And it starts off like this. You say you see no hope. You say you see no reason you should dream that the world could ever change. You're saying love is foolish to believe because there always will be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream and put the fear back in your life. And then listen to what he says. Look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to make it look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win so that on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins. It's love who makes the mortar and it's love who stacks these stones. And it's love who made the stage here, though it looks like we're alone. And in this scene set in shadows, 
like the night is here to stay. It is evil that's cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. And in this darkness, love will show the way. I've asked you to consider these verses of Jonah to set the stage for our fall study of Jonah. Let God do its work. This is the way that the stage has been set for Jonah as a book in these first three verses. And finally, I've asked you to believe that God has set the stage to confront you and me with his character toward the world and in turn ours. I can't wait to see what happens because I am convinced that our God who is love has set the stage. Let's do this together. Pray with me.